we're going to talk about Matthew chapters 1 and 2. And you'll see on the first uh, page and about a fourth of this handout to, I've given to you that uh, you have uh, Matthew chapters 1 and 2. This is from the New Revised Standard Version. Uh, I would rather you get your Bible out if you have your Bible with you and want to, uh, to turn to that rather than necessarily look at the handout. Although I have keyed a few things for us to, uh, to look at uh, on the handout uh, by putting them in bold. Or I, I included the headings that are included within the New Revised Standard versions uh, just to kind of divide things out. Um, the initial section is the genealogy, and that is a 17-verse section of Matthew, and I've shortened it to, to just three verses just to take the essence rather than put it all uh, on here because of the need for space. And then uh, the birth of Jesus, the visit of the wise men, the escape to Egypt, the massacre of the inf infants, and on the backside, uh, the return from Egypt. And what I want to, as, as we look at this, by the way, and think about the coming weeks, uh, you may wonder why we would give one week to Matthew 1 and 2 and then a week apiece to Luke 1 and Luke 2. It's not because <clears throat> I think Luke is that much better than Matthew. It's because Luke is that much longer than Matthew. Uh, Luke's uh, chapters, the first two chapters, are extraordinarily long chapters and dwarf uh, chapter Matthew chapters 1 and 2. In fact, I suspect that chapters 1 and 2, 23 verses and 25 verses, yes, would fit easily into uh, Luke's chapter 1, which is 80 verses. So uh, they, would, they would be less significantly than Luke chapter 1. As we look at Matthew's story, what I want us to do is think of Matthew um, as an apostle of Jesus who uh, perhaps uh, several decades later, we're not sure exactly when Matthew began to compose his gospel, but as he thinks through what he wants to do with his gospel, uh, most of uh, Academics think that Mark was probably the first gospel and that Matthew or Luke then, one of them would be the first gospel to, to decide to include an account of the birth of Jesus. And it's really interesting if you look at the two accounts, if you just sit down and look at them beside each other, there are not very many overlappings. So... Um, the angel appears to Joseph and Matthew. The angel appears to Mary and Luke. The wise men or magi come in Matthew. The shepherds come in Luke. I mean, everything, there seem to be a lot of somewhat similar stories. And of course, Bethlehem and Nazareth uh, appear in both of them. And Joseph and Mary appear in both of them. But, but other than a relatively small number of facts, um, it, it is as though they sat down in completely separate rooms and tried to figure out, now, what is it that I want to say in telling the story about Jesus and in starting with the story of Jesus' birth? 
And of course, part of what makes Luke a much longer story is he tells not only the birth of Jesus, but also the birth of who else? John the Baptist, yes. And then he integrates the two stories by, of course, Mary's relationship to Elizabeth and her visit to Elizabeth. And then he has those long poems that in modern times, or maybe not, maybe back in medieval times, uh, we have labeled the Magnificat, the long speech given by Mary, and the Benedictus, the uh, long speech given by Zechariah. But there, there's a lot of differences between the two. But just I'm um, asking you to just think about Matthew uh, coming to a point where he is beginning, and I mean, he even could have begun a decade before he decides to publish it, bringing together the things that he wants to say about Jesus. And it appears like that he is kind of pioneering what he wants to say about Jesus' birth. Because if Luke wrote before him, it doesn't look like he looked at it. Or if he did look at it, he decided, I don't pay much attention to that. I would write my own story of the birth of Jesus and vice versa. Whichever one of them was first, it doesn't look like the other really spent a lot of time looking at it. Of course, we blend them in nativity scenes. We have the wise men and the magi and everything all there together and pulled them, uh, pulled them together, but they're... Uh, they're distinct in many ways, although they're overlapping in the key facts about what happens. Uh, so think of what Matthew's trying to do, and of all things, he decides to start his gospel with a genealogy. And probably most of us would have said, don't do that. Put that somewhere. That's the most boring way you could possibly start People are going to go to sleep before they read through your first chapter. Uh, but what he is doing with it is significant. And I've kind of honed down the essence of it without uh, going through the entire genealogy. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And uh, that then... Uh, gives the essence. He's going to tie it to Abraham. He's going to tie it to David. There's also a third point he's going to tie it to. Does anyone recall what that is? Yes, he's going to tie it to the exile as well. Kind of two high points and a really low point in Israel's history. And he's going to say there are 14 generations between each one of these points. And so I've skipped from verse 1 to verse 16. He, he has given us, if you look in your Bible, uh, verses 2 through 6, cover from Abraham to David. Uh, verse 6b, the second half of verse 6 through 11, cover from David to the exile to Babylon. And then beginning in verse 12 and going through verse 16, covers from the exile to Babylon down to the birth of Jesus. By the way, most of us are used to the translation, the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, rather than Jesus the Messiah. And the underlying term here in Greek is Christos, which you can hear sounds like Christ. It's the word from which we get Christ. 
Uh, most of the more recent translations, including the, the newer NIV, the NRSV, most anything that you have that's been done in the last about 30 years, uh, they tend to translate the word Christ as Messiah when it's clearly used as a title for the Messiah. Uh, now, it's never used as a last name, like a lot of people probably think it is, Jesus Christ, Christ being his last name. It always has some amount of title to it, but there's sometimes when the notion of it being a title doesn't seem to be emphasized very much uh, in the way the text written in the New Testament. But they, they tend to translate the Messiah most of the time in the Gospels because it is being emphasized. The genealogy of Jesus, who is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then the last element of it, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. And again, you may be more used to the Christ, but clearly it's uh, kind of referring to a title there. And then uh, at the end of that section, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Probably for ancient Jewish readers, uh, they would have known why he wants 14 generations in particular. And if you, if you look at the accounts, and some of this is in the Old Testament, some of the, the genealogy all the way from Abraham uh, down to the time to the exile to Babylon, most of that is found within the Old Testament in one list or another list, and it's not exactly 14. And he has stylized it to be 14, and in fact, in ancient genealogies, it was fine to go from a great-grandfather to a great-grandson or something like that in the genealogy. So he has made it fit 14. It was, it was roughly, but he wanted to make it fit 14, 14, 14, probably because uh, in ancient languages, including Hebrew and Greek, Regular letters were used for numbers. And so if, if English was the same, the word Allen would have a numerical value, and Allen Black would have a numerical value. Um, and so you would do that in Greek with Greek letters, or you could do that in Hebrew with Hebrew letters. Um, so those languages, I, I suspect that if I was a child, in Hebrew, and my name was Jacob in Hebrew, I would know from, from young childhood what the number of my name was. And in fact, we, we find uh, in Pompeii, uh, where Vesuvius came and encapsulated everything for us to go back and discover later, we find graffiti on the walls that says something like, I love the girl whose number is 53. Well, they knew who they were, but everybody else didn't necessarily know uh, who, who they were. But the, the numbers uh, of the Hebrew letters for David, if you add those three, is 14. And so it, it seems like he is highlighting David 
Why would you highlight David when you're talking about the Messiah? Yeah, the kingship was to pass down through David, and the Messiah, one of the major qualifications of the Messiah was he was from the lineage of Judah, and in fact from the family heritage of David, which is part of what is brought out in the way that uh, Matthew lists it. Interestingly enough, it comes down to uh, David, and then his descendants include Jacob in verse 16, who's the father of Joseph, who's the husband of Mary. And so uh, Jesus' father, at least adopted father, the one who raised him is from the lineage of uh, David. Uh, Luke seems to go a little bit more through the, um, through the lineage of Mary rather than the lineage of David. I know you said that uh, one writer didn't necessarily look at the, uh, I don't know what evidence you have, didn't look at the other's writing, but uh, one could look at it from a non-academic like me. Uh, you could look at it with those two books as being, well, uh, whoever wrote it first, they, they wrote it, and as a first, second person, he left out this, and this item of, he left out this, and uh, so maybe I'll help fill in <laughs> some of the things that the first writer left out. Absolutely. And then the other thing, and this is going to be tempered a little bit by the Chosen, why Matthew might have included the genealogy, because he was, they sort of portray him like that in the Chosen, that he was, you know, very meticulous and very book-oriented, and uh, I can sort of see why Matthew might have included the genealogy. Uh, and maybe Luke didn't. Yes, of course Luke does include one. He, he doesn't include it at the beginning. No. He includes it later and he traces it all the way back to, uh, to Adam. But you, you've got a very good point that because you've read another author's work doesn't mean, it, it might mean in fact that you say, oh I don't want to tell what he told because uh, he's already told. Uh, but most academics by the way think that both Matthew and Luke knew Mark and used Mark because there's so much a Mark that is almost identical uh, scattered through their two Gospels. Most don't think they used each other, and a lot of the reason for it is like this, that on the places where uh, Matthew and Luke both have something similar, it's almost like they deliberately choose not to have any kind of overlap between them in terms of the, the details. There are a lot, of, a lot of other cultures would find it very important. And we are now finding it more important, right? Uh, wonder how many of you or your family members have decided to do their genealogy through ancestry and have given them a DNA sample and are finding, I mean, we've, we've found someone born from either one of our grandfathers or one of his brothers, and we can't identify which. Nobody in the family knew anything about it. Uh, but it seems perfectly clear through the DNA that that has to be the case. So there have been some interesting things that have arisen through my sister's involvement in ancestry and through her uh, uh, putting her DNA into to that system. So by the way, if you don't want to find out anything like that, 
Don't give them your DNA. If you, did, if you don't want to trace things and find out odd things about your family that you didn't know before, because once you get in that system, somebody's going to get in touch with you and say, hey, I'm your half-sister, or whatever. Yeah. So, David? Just, just to carry this thought a little bit farther, to include chapter two, uh, your, your uh, emphasis on Matthew choosing among all the different items of information he had about Jesus. What am I going to write? If he's writing for a Jewish audience, and this genealogy seems to be that. It does. Emphasizing Abraham, David, the exile. Only the Jews were still interested in that ancient history. The promise to David was that a descendant of his would always be on the throne. And uh, several of the prophets talk about kings coming to worship God, God's kingdom, participate in his kingdom, acknowledge mm -hmm. the reign of his designated king. So there's all this, all this um, fulfillment imagery in the Old Testament that the one, the descendant from David who would be God's Messiah, Savior, is going to come, but he hasn't come yet. And if Matthew is writing to demonstrate that Jesus is that one, then he's going to emphasize his royalty, which is a possibility for the reason that he describes the visit of the Magi from the east rather than yes. shepherds who were common and didn't have to travel all that far. Uh, that's, that's a very good point. And, and by the way, two years later, they didn't make it to the major. Right. Uh, they did in the nativity scene, but... <laughs> yeah. Bible stories getting retold. Moses' basket floating off down the Nile. And yes. The wise men at the manger. Yes. There, there are several of those. And in, in fact, um, it, I, I'm not sure when, when in church history this comes about, but in the centuries after Jesus, the magi or wise men are turned into what? We three kings of Orient are. Um, so we sing about the three kings, and the place we get it is from the magi, and they are not said to be kings in the text. But that's very early second, third, fourth century tradition has been around for a very long time that they were kings. And some of that may have come from the need for kings to come and uh, recognize and bow down before and, and do homage to the ultimate king, the, the Messiah, the descendant of David. There's a very strong emphasis on David and the idea that this is the Messiah, which means the anointed one, which is what you did with kings. You did that with priests as well. There were others that were anointed when they took office. But when a king took office, it would seem very strange to us if we decided to anoint presidents by pouring olive oil on their head and uh, kind of watching it uh, roll down. But it didn't seem strange to them uh, to anoint kings. And so we have the emphasis on David in the genealogy. 
The emphasis on Jesus being the Messiah, the anointed one, in verse 18. The emphasis on his father being the son of David in verse 20. I think it's not an accident that uh, when the angel appears to Joseph, he doesn't just say, Joseph, don't be afraid. But he says, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. And goes back and picks up the fact that it's been illustrated that he's in the, uh, the lineage. And then down in uh, chapter 2 and verse 2, uh, when the Magi come, the wise men, they say, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? And so there again is that emphasis on the Messiahship, on him being in the lineage uh, of, of David who is coming. So I've, I've kind of identified a few places, and I think that uh, David has a good point that the, the whole notion of David the king being a type for Jesus the Messiah, him coming through his lineage, him being the promised king, runs uh, not only through these first couple of chapters, but through the rest of the book of Matthew, and has a lot to do with some of the choices that he made. I think choosing to begin with Abraham does indicate that he probably has a Jewish audience in mind. It probably also indicates that we're to think about the promise to Abraham. What is the promise to Abraham? What did God promise Abraham? Yeah, that through his descendants all nations will be blessed. And so here we have Abraham emphasized right at the beginning. And of course, if we could turn to various places in Matthew, and perhaps the first thing you would think of is the end of Matthew, where Jesus commands them to go into all the nations. Um, and so the, the Great Commission at the end of Matthew is uh, still fulfilling uh, the way in which Jesus is the fulfillment of what was promised to Abraham. He's the fulfillment of uh, what was promised to David. And then I want to spend a little time uh, tonight. Well, let's first just emphasize that um, a lot of Matthew's choices, we're thinking about Matthew making these choices, um, and, and I would understand that as under the guidance of the Spirit, but I do think he thought the Spirit guides his preparation to think, his exposure to the story about Jesus and everything about him, um, is that Matthew is interested in pulling together those stories that he can directly link to Old Testament prophecy. The genealogy itself sets the whole story of Jesus in the line of fulfilling God's promises what he had planned to do, what he said to Abraham, what he said to David, what looked like it wasn't going to make it with the deportation to Babylon, but then it gets turned around and in a different way it does actually come about. And that is the uh, five kind of fulfillment quotations that Matthew uses. I've underlined each of them. So look at verse 22 where the, uh, the, uh, the appearance to Joseph has just taken place, and uh, he's been told that he doesn't need to worry about his wife Mary being pregnant. Not his wife yet, but his betrothed. 
And you can understand how that would be a concern uh, to Joseph, but he is reassured by the angel. And then in verse 22 and 23, all this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel. And that comes from Isaiah chapter 7. And then when we go down to the visit from the wise men and their inquiry about where to go, and uh, Herod being told by the scribes that Bethlehem is the place, then we're told in verse 5, uh, they told him, this is what the scribes actually say. They bring out the prophecy this time. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For, you, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. And then we go on and we find that Herod decides to kill the babies and that an angel appears to Joseph and warns him to take Jesus to Egypt. And in verse 8, 15, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. And then when the massacre of the infants takes place that Herod brings about, we're told in verse 17 and 18, then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. And then when they return from Egypt and they go to Nazareth, we're told at the end of verse 13, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called, or he will be called, a Nazarene or a Nazarene. That's a tough one because as most of you are aware, uh, there's no such verse that we know of that says he shall be called a Nazarene. And so uh, people through the centuries have tried to figure out where this comes from. And a very common suggestion, although it, it doesn't seem great, but it, it's a possibility, is that in Isaiah 11.1, 1, we have the statement that a root will come out of the stump of Jesse, which is Jesse, David's father. A root will come out of that stump of the lineage of David. The word root is the Hebrew word netzer, which has the same consonants as Nazarene, N, N, Z, and R. If we put them in English, it has an N, a Z, and an R. That, that seems stretching it to go from there to uh, he shall be called a Nazarene. And in the most recent translation of the NIV, if any of you have that before you, it, uh, it tries to treat this as not even being a quote and says something like, so that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene, and they don't treat it as a direct quote, which helps things just a little bit, because then you're not looking for a quote that says, he shall be called a Nazarene. Some others think that it might have something to do with Nazarite vows, 
because again, you have almost the same consonants, uh, N, Z, and R. And uh, so th those are possibilities. But what I want to emphasize here, and, and we could obviously, if we had time, go through each of these prophecies, look them up, observe that in some cases, we have to say, well, what exactly is Matthew doing with this? And it often appears that he is using it in a typological sense. It's not a direct and specific fulfillment about Jesus, but something that happened in the life of Israel that can be applied uh, to the story about Jesus in a typological kind of uh, fashion. Uh, but what I want to emphasize here is that Matthew clearly wants to choose things about the birth of Jesus that show the fulfillment of God's plan, either through things he directly and specifically said about how uh, the descendants of Abraham would bless the world, or his statement to David that there would always be one uh, on his throne from his descendants, or things that are more broadly uh, sort of historical about Israel, like that Israel came out of Egypt, and in a similar way, the Messiah follows that same pattern, comes out of Egypt. But Matthew wants to emphasize the notion of fulfillment, and he does that all the way through. I, I want, we brought up a little bit about Abraham. We brought up a little bit about David. We brought up the emphasis on fulfillment. I, I want to get to a little bit about Moses. Moses isn't mentioned here at all. The term Moses, the name Moses does not appear in the genealogy. The name Moses does not appear in the first or second chapter. And yet uh, throughout uh, the history of the interpretation of these two chapters, a lot of people have seen what we would call Moses typology. That is, things that happen to Moses in Moses' life foreshadow things that are going to happen to Jesus in Jesus' life, and that Matthew is indirectly saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of what Moses says in Deuteronomy 18, uh, when Moses talks about a prophet like him that is going to be raised up among the people. So people were expecting another Moses or a prophet like Moses. And Matthew seems to be saying this is the guy without ever naming Moses and without ever referring specifically to Deuteronomy 18. As you just look at Matthew and uh, what you see there in the stories from Matthew, is there anything here that jumps out to you and says, well, that's kind of like Moses? Yeah, so Herod finds out that, uh, that a king of the Jews is being born and he decides to put to death all, uh, unlike Pharaoh, he doesn't put to death all of the boys that are born. Uh, and oddly, I suppose, he puts to death the boys and the girls, as far as we can tell, he puts to death everyone 
that uh, is under two years old. And that certainly seems to resonate with Moses. Moses fleeing to Egypt. Yeah. So there, there's another uh, aspect is it, that Moses flees. I, th- I think where, where he flees to Midian, I know that's what you meant to say, flees from Egypt to Midian uh, because he's fearful for his life. So there's, there's kind of some obvious biblical parallels. Uh, one person I, I read was kind of trying to put them together. And so he cites specific verses. And let me just, uh, and does them kind of, I guess it's not citation as much as a summary. Matthew 2, 13 and 14, Herod was going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph took the child and his mother and went away. Exodus chapter 2, verse 15, Then Pharaoh sought to do away with Moses, so Moses went away. And, and that's what happens in the story after Moses uh, uh, kills the Egyptian. Matthew 2.16, Herod sent to Bethlehem, massacred all the boys of two years old and under. Exodus chapter 1, we're going backwards here. Pharaoh commanded that every male born to the Hebrews be cast into the Nile. Uh, then there's the fact that Herod died and the king of Egypt died. Then there's uh, Matthew 2, 19 and 20. The angel of the Lord said to Joseph in Egypt, Go back to the land of Israel, for those who are seeking the child's life are dead. And then Exodus chapter 4 and verse 19, The Lord said to Moses in Midian, Return to Egypt, for all those who are seeking your life are dead. So it's, it's almost an echo. In, in that uh, particular case. And in Matthew 2.21, right after that, Joseph took the child and his mother and went back to the land of Israel. And in Exodus 4.20, right after that, Moses took his wife and his children and he returned back to Egypt. And so there are a lot of things that just from the Bible jump out to us. Um, we can also... Interestingly, and I'll just throw this out for you to think about it. Um, This is on the back side of the page. There are all kinds of traditions that the Jews maintain around the first century or before about what happened to Moses. Things that aren't in the Bible per se, but had uh, grown to... Uh, you know, maybe many of them considered leg- them legends. Maybe many of them considered them true. I thought they were passed down through the years as things that weren't described in the Bible, but that did happen. This is an account by Josephus. Uh, Josephus was born about the year 50, I think, and he wrote this big, voluminous set of uh, sort of a history of the Jews. He wrote a history of the war uh, when the Romans went in and destroyed the temple and destroyed Jerusalem. But he also wrote a history of the Jews. And in the history of the Jews, he tells a lot of stuff that we don't find in the Old Testament. I just thought I'd emphasize some of these things that apparently were floating around in the first century. So here he's describing the things about the birth of Moses. 
And so look at the italicized parts. Uh, this is basically when he says when the affairs of the Hebrews were in this condition, he's just told about all the horrible things that Pharaoh was putting uh, the Israelites through. And then it says, one of those sacred scribes who are very sagacious in foretelling future events truly told the king, that is Pharaoh, at about this time that there would be a child born to the Israelites who, if he were reared, would bring the Egyptian dominion down and would raise the Israelite. That's pretty fascinating. We don't learn anything about that from the Bible, but perhaps people who are reading Matthew when it's originally written are thinking about these stories that were very common. We find them in more places than this. But this is one of the best representations from the first century. And go on to uh, the next italicized part, which thing was so feared by the king that according to this man's opinion, he commanded that they should cast every male child which was born to the Israelites into the river and destroy it. And so we get a little extra information there. Pharaoh was warned that this great person was going to be raised up, and that's why he decides to destroy all the males, Israelites. Then look at the next section. A man whose name was Amram, one of the noble sort of the Hebrews, was afraid for his whole nation, lest it should fail, by the want of young men to be brought up hereafter. And he was very uneasy with it. His wife being then with child, and he knew not what to do. Of course, this is the father of Moses. And so like Joseph, it's not quite the same situation. He doesn't worry that his wife has been with another man, but his wife is pregnant. He knows about this coming death of the children, and he is very uneasy and upset. And then he prays to God, and going to the next italicized part, God had mercy on him and was moved by his supplication. He stood by him, that's Amram, in his sleep, and he exhorted him not to despair of his, that is, God's uh, future favors. And going on down, God is speaking in specifically to Amram, for that child, out of dread whose nativity the Egyptians have doomed the Israelite children to destruction, shall be this child of thine, and shall be concealed from those who watch to destroy him. And when he is brought up in a surprising way, he shall deliver the Hebrew nation from the distress that they are under from the Egyptians. So the, the question, I guess, here is whether... Some of Matthew's choices even have to do with common ideas that aren't in the Bible, but that people thought. You know, you mentioned just a few minutes ago the, um, uh, what's the TV series? Chosen. Yeah, The Chosen. Uh, if people in our society who don't know the Bible watch The Chosen, they are going to believe a lot of stories that are not in the Bible, a lot of which just kind of fill things out, like that uh, Matthew was on the autism scale uh, in the way that he, he thought about things and did things. 
they're going to have lots of ideas. There were lots of ideas among first century Jews. Uh, many, uh, and some of these ideas were probably very common because some of them, when you look in the academic literature, they not only quote Josephus, they quote this, that, and the other, a variety of sources indicating that at least some of these ideas are widespread among Jews uh, in, the, in the first century, that they thought that in addition to the Bible, uh, what the Bible says, there was this scribe, wise man, who told uh, Pharaoh, you got to be concerned because this boy is going to come up, and this boy is going to bring the Egyptians down and raise up the Israelites. And then that becomes a concern to Moses' father when he hears what's going to happen. And then God appears to him, and God speaks to him, and God reassures him that he's going to bear a son that's going to deliver the people. All of that just, you wonder to what extent that runs around in uh, Matthew's heads or in the heads of uh, those Jews who early on read these accounts. Yes, there are. <laughs> there are a lot of ideas floating around now. And uh, th this idea is perhaps a wild goose chase, but uh, at least it's fascinating. I thought it might be something interesting to you. If you look through Matthew thinking, what here reflects Moses, you'll find a lot scattered. You won't find Matthew saying, Jesus is the prophet like Moses, although perhaps... When Jesus asked the disciples who people say I am, in, in Matthew's account, does he say Moses? It's him. It, he should say Moses in Matthew's account because Matthew is uh, bigger on Moses than the other Gospels. Uh, Matthew is one who says the most. No, he doesn't. He said Elijah and still others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. So it must be in Luke, I believe, where he makes a reference to Moses. Luke is also interested in foreshadowings that come through the life of Moses. Um, then did those things, you know, as Luke and as Matthew are thinking about them, did they ever try to kind of reflect also other ideas about Moses that are common ideas in their time. Something to think about. Next week we'll come back and we'll go into Luke chapter 1. I had at least uh, three times as many things to say, but I didn't recognize I had only an hour or less than an hour. Have a good week.